the old pilot's plain tales into thinner air. On my last tale, we heard about some aircraft that mysteriously carried on flying for miles without a pilot at the controls. This is a phenomenon that is not just restricted to the military. The dangers of high-altitude flying are not really emphasized to the flying public, and many are completely happy to sit in their pressurized flying tube without any true understanding of the environment they're traveling through. Here, typing at my desk, I'm at one atmosphere of pressure. Above me is a layer of air that surrounds the Earth, and although we consider air to be light, the weight of many miles of air, about 75 miles or 120 kilometers of it, sits on our shoulders. To be more accurate, it presses on all parts of us continuously, and we have to live under its weight. It's the equivalent weight of a 30-foot, that's over 10 meters, column of water. That's about 14 pounds per square inch, or one kilogram per square centimeter, pressing down on us. The weight of all the air that surrounds the world is 5 million billion tons. We have evolved to live under that weight of air and can actually cope with much higher pressures. A record-breaking free diver has reached 24 and a half times the weight of the atmosphere without suffering injury. What we are not so good at is coping with a reduction of air pressure. Despite the fact that the atmosphere reaches up to 75 miles, when we climb our airliners up to a common cruising level of around 36,000 feet, about 7 miles high, three quarters of the mass of the atmosphere is now below us, and the air is at a much lower pressure. Having been explosively decompressed in a hyperbaric chamber by the Air Force a few times, the effects are not as death-defying as one might imagine. The biggest concern is keeping the flow of oxygen that we are breathing at a high enough concentration and pressure to pass through the walls of the lungs. The membranes inside the lungs are only one cell thick, but gas molecules need pressure to pass through and into the bloodstream. Take that pressure away and the transfer of gases stops. You'll soon start suffering from hypoxia, a lack of oxygen to the body. Depending on the severity, hypoxia can soon lead to unconsciousness and death. Payne Stewart was a fine golfer. Popular with spectators, he was renowned for wearing distinctive and flamboyant clothes. Other golfers admired him for having one of the most gracefully fluid golf swings of the modern era. By 1999, he had won 11 PGA Tour events, including three majors, one of which was the U.S. Open. He was part of the American team that had rallied so well to win the 1999 Ryder Cup. A month after that momentous victory, he boarded a Learjet to fly from his home in Orlando to Texas for the last tournament of the year. Tasked with flying Payne Stewart and his fellow passengers that day were two experienced pilots. 
Captain Michael Kling held an air transport pilot certificate and his type rating included airliners as well as the Learjet that he was flying that day. In addition, he was an instructor pilot on the KC-135. His first officer, Stephanie Belagargu, was also a flight instructor and held type ratings on the Cessna Citation 500 and the Learjet. There was nothing unusual about their flight preparation that day. They checked the weather, filed their flight plan and loaded more than enough fuel for their flight to Dallas. They took the Sunjet Aviation Learjet off from Sanford Airport for the short and uneventful positioning flight to Orlando International, where they were due to pick up their passengers. Having embarked their famous golfer plus three others, they took off for the second time that day, initially routing north on the departure, climbing up to 14,000 feet. They were further cleared to climb to 26,000 feet, change frequency, and then were cleared to continue their climb to their cruise level of flight level 390, 39,000 feet. They acknowledged the instruction as they passed 23,000 feet. It was the voice of Stephanie, the first officer, who sounded perfectly normal, but it was to be their final transmission. As the Learjet passed 36,000 feet, the controller passed further instructions, but there was no reply. The controller made multiple attempts to contact the aircraft, but nothing came back. The authorities acted swiftly. A nearby F-16 from the Flight Test Squadron at Elgin Air Force Base was vectored to join up with the stricken aircraft, which had continued to climb to over 46,000 feet. The inside of the Learjet's cabin was in darkness and the cockpit windows were frosted over with ice or condensation and nothing could be seen of the two pilots. When he had to leave the Learjet, other fighters joined it to track its progress. It continued onwards, crossing state after state and not responding to calls until, eventually, fuel exhausted, it slowed, stalled, and then began a rapid rolling descent towards the earth miles below. A pheasant hunter in a South Dakota cornfield was teaching a hunting class when he spotted a silent aircraft plummet down into an adjacent field a mile or two away. It was an eerie and shocking sight to witness. The aircraft crashed no sound, no explosion, it just disappeared behind the tall corn stalks. Then four F-16 fighters roared overhead, breaking the silence. All on the Learjet died. Had they somehow not perished in the air, the aircraft hit the ground at such a speed that survival would have been impossible. The inquiry did their best to establish the cause of the crash, but were hampered by a lack of evidence. What was obvious was that the pilots had succumbed to hypoxia when the aircraft depressurized in the climb and they failed to obtain the supplementary oxygen that they needed to remain capable of dealing with the emergency. It's possible that the oxygen tank that they were trying to use was empty since the Learjet had flown over 104 hours since the last recorded filling of the system and it was almost certainly used on some of those flights. When the aircraft crashed, it was reading empty. 
It's also possible that the crew were just too slow to don their masks and became incapacitated before they could do so. There were just too many unanswered questions, and the NTSB formally determined that the probable cause of the accident was incapacitation of the flight crew members as a result of their failure to receive oxygen following a loss of cabin pressure for undetermined reasons. As tragic as this crash was, it pales into insignificance compared with the second half of this tale. Helios Flight 522 was a scheduled airline flight between Larnica in Cyprus and Athens in Greece. It was August 2005, and the aircraft, a Boeing 737-300 series, was carrying 115 passengers, mainly Cypriots and Greeks, and being captained by Hans-Jürgen Merton, a 59-year-old German contract pilot, hired by Helios for the holiday flights. Merton was an experienced pilot who had been flying for 35 years and previously worked on a number of airlines. His first officer was a 51-year-old Cypriot pilot who had been flying for Helios for the past five years. The aircraft had arrived from London that morning and been snagged by the inbound crew for having a frozen door seal and abnormal noises had been heard from around the right aft service door. The British ground engineer carried out an inspection on the door and then performed a pressurisation check. In order to do this without running the engines, he needed to set the pressurisation system to manual and on completion of the successful test, that's how the system was left. The pilots climbed into the aircraft and prepared it for flight. According to their checklists and procedures, they were required to check the state of the pressurization system and confirm that it was set in auto three separate times during the cockpit setup, during the after start checklist, and also during the after takeoff checklist. There are surprisingly few things that will kill you when flying in an airliner. Hitting the ground is one of them and flying at high level without pressurization is another. At a little after nine in the morning, the Helios flight got airborne with the pressurization system set to manual and the aft outflow valve partially open. Had the system been correctly set to auto, the outflow valves would have closed after takeoff to allow the aircraft to pressurize. On reaching the correct pressure differential, the valves would then open slightly to allow a controlled flow out of the aircraft to maintain the correct cabin altitude. In the manual position, the outflow valves must be controlled by the pilots. It's a backup system should the automatic system fail. As the 737 climbed, air bled from the engines would have been entering the cabin to pressurise the aircraft, but since the system had been left in manual with an outflow valve partially open, the air was escaping almost as fast as it was coming in. As the aircraft climbed, so did the cabin, and the aircraft was rapidly increasing in height to the point where the air pressure was becoming dangerously low. Eventually, passing an aircraft altitude of 12,000 feet 
the cabin altitude warning horn sounded. This was coincident with the cabin altitude reaching 10,000 feet. A warning horn on the 737 has several functions, only one of which is linked to cabin altitude. It most commonly sounds when the aircraft isn't configured properly. Perhaps the landing gear or flaps were in the wrong position. Misidentifying the reason for the horn, the captain radioed his company operations centre to advise them that the takeoff configuration warning is on. He then advised that the cooling equipment, normal and alternate, are offline. Speaking to the ground engineer who did the earlier work on the pressurization system, the engineer asked him, Can you confirm that the pressurization panel is set to auto? Of course this wasn't the case, and it should have been the trigger for the crew to reassess their situation, as the light indicating that the pressurization system was set to manual was illuminated and the warning horn was blaring. However, Perhaps distracted by the noise of the loud horn, and by now suffering from the effects of hypoxia, the crew would have had difficulty comprehending their situation. Captain Merton made the fatal mistake of ignoring his engineer. The aircraft continued to climb, and as it passed 18,000 feet, with the cabin altitude reaching 14,000, the passenger oxygen masks deployed. The captain, still trying to solve the less important issue regarding his equipment cooling, made his final transmission asking where the circuit breakers were. Under the control of the autopilot, the 737 reached its cruising altitude of 34,000 feet and then continued on its programmed flight path towards Athens. Inside the cabin, the air was thinner than on the peak of Everest, and after 12 minutes, the passenger oxygen system would have been exhausted. On the flight deck, the pilots never used their oxygen masks, and they likely succumbed to the effects of oxygen starvation by falling unconscious. Soon after, in the cabin, the passengers would have suffered the same fate. The cabin crew, however, had a longer supply of oxygen from their portable bottles, and it's certain that at least one of them used that supply for the duration of the flight. Flight attendant Andreas Prodromu was learning to become a pilot and held a UK commercial pilot's licence. We know he eventually gained access to the cockpit, a difficult task because of the locked cockpit door procedure, because he was observed there by a Hellenic Air Force F-16 that had been scrambled to intercept the unresponsive 737. Initially, the F-16 pilot could only see the first officer on the flight deck, slumped motionless in his seat, and unresponsive passengers at the windows, surrounded by dangling, and by then useless, oxygen masks. By this time, the aircraft had been flying an automatic holding pattern overhead its destination airport for some time. Andreas broke into the flight deck and sat in the captain's seat, reaching up to the front panel that controls the autopilot, presumably in an attempt to descend the aircraft. Sadly, very shortly after entering the cockpit, 
the 737 ran out of fuel. First one, and then both engines flamed out, and Andreas made several mayday calls. These could only be heard on the cockpit voice recorder, as the radio was still tuned to a Larnica frequency that was well out of range. The descending airliner took up a meandering course, and the fighter pilot on its wing tried to get Andreas to follow him to the airport. Now down to 7,000 feet, Andreas waved briefly, but despite his efforts, the aircraft continued to descend rapidly until it collided with the hilly terrain about 20 miles from Athens. Although unconscious, some on the aircraft had survived the depressurization but in the subsequent crash, all on board perished. The year before this accident, the NASA Aviation Safety Reporting System Office had issued Boeing, the FAA, and other aviation industry organizations with an alert bulletin warning them of the high number of incidents in the United States when the 737 cabin altitude warning horn had been confused with a configuration warning. Incidents went back a long way, but no effort had been made to integrate the warning with an indication on the main warning panel. Boeing themselves had revised their checklist procedures in the year 2000, and they made further changes in 2005, but when the Helios aircraft was lost, changes to the flight crew training manual reinforcing the importance of the horn in relation to cabin altitude had yet to be issued. However, a year after this event, pilots were still reporting confusion, three in February 2006 alone. One pilot reported, Given the development and increasing sophistication of the aircraft systems on the Boeing 737 and its variants, it's noteworthy that the cabin altitude warning system has remained virtually unchanged for nearly 50 years and shares similarities with the Boeing 727. Why this system has not been tied into the master caution warning system escapes me. Well, it escapes me too, but finally, Boeing learned from this and other incidents and thankfully have now modified their aircraft with supplementary visual warning lights, but all a bit late for the 121 aboard Helios Flight 522. If you enjoyed the story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.